You're listening to Road Bike Action's Bike Tech. Boulder, Colorado, I'm George Thomas on the line with Neil Shirley of Road Bike Action Magazine. And we also have Joe Mackey joining us from Mountain Bike Action. Uh, guys, great to talk with you. Thanks for having us, George. So, big event over the weekend, Cyclocross Nationals. I was hoping we could chat a little bit about the equipment used there. Would that be all right, Neil? Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. Um, it was uh, it was quite. Um, I, I I do have to say I, I wasn't out in Asheville, um, North Carolina, for the nationals, but uh, Zap Espinosa, our content editor, was out there, so he kind of gave me a, a debriefing, and I, I watched the live coverage online as well. Now that course sounded especially interesting, really difficult, very challenging, and it sounded like it really tested people's overall skills yeah kind of the the overwhelming consensus was that it's the hardest course they've ever had for uh for a national championship u.s national championship and it was it was very similar to a lot of um the you know a lot of the european courses the challenges were were equal and uh you know there's there's some people saying that uh, some industry folks saying that this would be a really good world championship course so maybe in you know in the next decade we could we could see worlds over here how do you feel that a course like that affects the equipment that the racers use um well i think for the most part you know the the riders they get used to uh you know their standard gearing setup for uh, you know for the the the, the season up until this point and all of a sudden you're on a course where there's much more climbing than you usually find and I believe it's somewhere around 400 feet per per lap um, and so that's that's kind of a big deal you have to start changing cassettes um, chain ring sizes you know a lot of riders are you know are on the, the SRAM one by drivetrains um, so there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of thought that has to be given, you know, in the when they're pre-riding previous days, like leading into it, um, to uh, to get the gearing dialed that normally in most courses they they would have had figured out, you know, weeks and months previously. What about tire selection? Well, the, that was one thing that was interesting because you know they had a lot of rain leading up to uh, Sunday's you know national championship event. So the juniors going you know earlier in the day, I, you know most of those riders had to use a straight up mud tires, really really slick and, and um, sloppier terrain or um, conditions. But then the course really started to dry up, and so. It, it was definitely not dry enough for like a, a straight up file tread, but I believe Jeremy Powers used you know used a setup that was not a full mud tire, but something something more in the middle, so it was a little faster rolling than a mud tire. Now the products that the pros are using out at a race like this, are they using new products that aren't available to the public yet, or are they on stock? For the most part, um, the pro riders were on uh, products that are available right now, you know, in any bike shop or, or online. Um, you know, SRAM, they're, uh, they're one by drivetrains. Um, you know, those those are the overwhelming favorite. But, you know, the Shimano, 
uh, like Katie Compton, you know, she, she won her national championship on a Shimano double chain ring setup and all, you know, all that is, is currently available. Now, why do you think that SRAM setup is so popular? SRAM is, you know, they've, they've really invested heavily, you know, for, started on the mountain bike with their one by drivetrain and, and they, the rear cassette provides the, the full range that everyone that they need and it's just the pace it's just such a fast-paced event that having to go in and out of the changing you know chain rings going in and out of the big ring um if you can eliminate the need for that that's one less thing to even think about while you're out there what were your overall impressions of the race well, for one, you know, I think with Jeremy Powers, you know, his fourth national championship title, it was he never had to put in that knockout punch. He just stayed really, he just raced a very solid race, an error-free race, um, where, you know, Stephen Hyde, um, who ended up second, the Cannondale Cyclocross World Rider, he, you know, he was fantastically strong and, and someone to really watch for the future but he had two small crashes in that uh, you know at that level trying to chase back which he did um, especially after the first one uh, that that really takes it out of you and, and that showed in the last you know in the last 10 minutes when he just couldn't couldn't keep Jeremy um, couldn't stay on Jeremy's wheel now, Neil, I'm surprised you weren't out there. Cyclocross is painful, and it seems like that's the kind of thing you love after talking with you about the Taiwan challenge. <laughs> it, it's a it's a completely different type of pain. I love the I love the long, stretched out, painful events because they're uh, the gravel races and stuff. If you can stretch it out over eight, ten hours, then then that's my cup of tea. But the 45 to 60 minute stuff, it, it's so insanely intense that, uh, I don't know, that's, that's not for me. <laughs> okay, so Everesting would need to be really, really quick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, cyclocross, it's just, it's such a different animal. Um, and, and those that, you know, those that have success in it, got, you know, riders like Jeremy Powers, you know, he, he, he had... He started, you know, he's always been a cyclocross guy, but he had a professional road career for years, and he finally realized that in order to make that next step in cyclocross, it's something that he really had to just focus his attention on that and focus his entire season around. He rode for Jelly Belly on the road for quite a few years, and, and it wasn't until he really um, traded in his his pro road license and went all in on cross that he he's been you know phenomenal in the u.s now joe Mackey joining us from mountain bike action magazine joe there were some other really big races this year or actually this past weekend that didn't get quite as much uh, attention as cyclocross nationals but uh there was a huge snow race that went on up in uh idaho put on by jay peterberry and um, those don't seem to be so unique anymore. Why the resurgence or why the increase in popularity of the fat bike? Well, 
wintertime is uh, kind of always been a dark time for mountain bikers and just general outdoor enthusiasts just because of mountain bikers in particular because the snow has kept them inside and in inclement weather. Um, but with fat bikes becoming you know, more of a norm um, and more available to consumers, uh, riders are able to be out riding in the snow and enjoying those types of events during the wintertime. So, Neil, why didn't we see any fat bikes at Cyclocross Nationals? <laughs> they're too fat. Well, one, there's very few with, <laughs> with uh, drop bars, so they're not eligible. <laughs> so, Joe, I was wondering if you could really go into the details of the fat bike, why it's so good in snow. Uh, I mean, it really opens up a whole unique type of racing mm-hmm. and adventure. Um, yeah. Well, the main... The main reason pretty much comes down to, you know, just the name itself, a fat bike. It has a much wider tire than a traditional mountain bike. Um, so that footprint on the trail or the snow is allows riders to stay on top of the snow, for one, and actually, you know, make it through certain, you know, deep snow and stuff like that. Um, they're not the quickest bikes on the planet by any means but they definitely can handle their own once uh, once things start to get a little gnarly out there. Now, you said something that really generated a question, and that was the footprint that these leave. How is the response of people who maintain trails and, maintain trails and, and take care of areas where there's a lot of cycling? Are the, the wider tires okay? Yeah, and there's definitely um, a time where you should not be riding. Um, you know, in particular here in Southern California, a lot of our local trails don't handle um, rain very well just because of, you know, there's a lot of mud and clay or a lot of clay in the dirt. Um, so a lot of that just varies from, you know, place to place and what the geology is like of those general areas. But uh, fat bikes, too, they also run a much lower tire pressure. Um, so the tires themselves aren't digging into the trail quite as much, um, but there's definitely, you know, a good time and bad times to be out on the trail. Um, and a lot of that, you know, is up to kind of the local area and, you know, how people in that area like to ride and, uh, based on the rain and such. Now, what are some things some people should look for if they're interested in purchasing a fat bike? Um, you know, of course we would try to find, you know, um, we would definitely recommend trying to test ride one. So find something at your local shop. Uh, if they have them in stock, generally, you know, stores will keep bikes, will stock bikes that suit the area and that riders in that general area are interested in. Um, we are fans of running, um, one by drivetrains these days. So, one chain ring in the front and then anywhere from 10 to 11 gears in the back. Uh, it's just a much cleaner, simpler system. Um, also as well, uh, aluminum frame is a good starting point for an entry-level bike, but finding something with a carbon fiber fork uh, will keep the weight down a little bit and also improve the ride quality of the bikes. Now, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. Uh, you were saying that there might be some popularity as far as the fat bikes go in sand out at the Southern California beaches, but probably not yeah. a race future for this. 
No, well, I'd never say never. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but we def I've definitely seen uh, a couple fat bikers in our local area in the summertime. Um, in a couple areas that have some very soft uh, dirt that's even tough to ride on, you know, a standard mountain bike or tire size. I find it interesting. I've actually chatted with a couple of roadies who did the uh, Idaho snow race, and uh, they hadn't really put in any practice time on a fat bike, and they hopped on and felt really comfortable. Do you find that normal, Joe, that there's not a whole lot of learning curve? Uh, yeah, actually. Just with the bigger tires, um, they're able to kind of correct mistakes a little in in a sense that the traction is just so good and there is such a bigger footprint that, you know, the tires essentially will just roll over just about anything. Um, these bikes are sensitive to tire pressure, however. Um, so if you start to get comfortable and start pushing your limits and your boundaries a little bit to get faster, you will you know, uh, tire pressure makes a big difference and can be, have some consequences if it's not dialed in properly. Do you know the price range that people would be looking at to get into a fat bike? Uh, that is a great question. I know that there are some, I'd imagine you could find probably a complete bike for around 1500 maybe even a little less. And then, uh, of course, the sky's the limit after that. So, Neil, as a total roadie and gravelly, any interest in getting into a fat bike? Uh, not so much, honestly. I, I guess if I lived in an area, you know, I lived in Colorado, Utah, you know, Midwest, East Coast, anywhere other than Southern California, I think there would be more interest for me. But where I'm at now, I would be... When we see snow, it, it's only when we are on a long ride and we climb really, really high, and it's kind of a novelty thing. Um, so there's there's really no no desire for me to to do anything on a fat bike. Now I said gravelly. What do you what do you call someone who rides gravel? Um, I'm a graveler. Okay, graveler. <laughs> <laughs> about that. <laughs> Joe, how about you as a, an avid mountain biker? Um, do you have a fat bike or any interest in getting into one of those living in Southern California? You know, it's not really my cup of tea. Um, I do think that there is a bike for, for every application and I am similar to Neil in that I do not ride in very much snow. So, <laughs> but if I did live in the Midwest or East Coast, where, you know, we were pretty much shut down with snow, you know, three or four months out of the year, it would definitely be a serious consideration for me. Now, final question to both of you. Cyclocross season is wrapped up, I know, to a lot of people's disappointment. Um, what do you recommend the avid cyclocross cyclist get into? Uh, I'll take that one first. Um obviously gravel events it's uh it's an easy easy crossover you already have the bike maybe uh, a little wider tires pull off the 33 millimeter tires put on a, a 35 mil um tire and go find a gravel event there are tons of them now across the country um it's such a such a growing sport dirty kansas just 
had read their registration opened on Saturday, and the 1,900 allotted spots filled up in a matter of about two hours, a new record for them. So that shows the the excitement and the growth of that segment of the sport. And if you uh, if you have a cross bike, you enjoy that uh, that type of riding, then gravel racing or riding is is just a, a pretty good extension of that. Joe, any thoughts? You know, we are seeing a you know just a huge explosion in the enduro style riding and enduro races and. Considering that cyclocross does have a certain technical element to it, enduro-style riding in races would be an awesome option for cyclocross racers to really build their just basic bike handling uh, and bike skills. Neil Shirley, Road Bike Action Magazine. Joe Mackey, Mountain Bike Action Magazine. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, George, your time. Road Thank bike, you very much. Road Bike Action's Bike Tech. Boulder, Colorado. I'm George Thomas.